Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business? Trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it? Network? Maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with that. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Frankly, at Shallow Small Group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth? Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. It wasn't pleasant. There's no pressure here to remember each other's name. What's going on, buddy? Oh, hey man, how's it going? That's good. Oh, dude. Captain, what's going on? We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. Group discussion? You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Oh, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? Uh, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague. Who wants cake? Come on again! And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. That's our guarantee to you. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy, and we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial, but hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group, because when things get too deep, people drown. Won't you join us? So Jesus, by the power of your spirit, ask that you would certainly help us to understand that text and maybe even that video and how it applies to our life this week. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So just to start, uh, you don't have to show your hands, but you can just be honest in your own mind. How many of you, as that video was playing, were thinking, so what's wrong with that? Sign me up. <laughs> you can be honest, because that's what I thought. Every, every time I see it, I go, that's what I want, right? Well, believe it or not, that video has everything to do with the very strange story we read today about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, who sold some of their property in order to be able to give the money to their church to help people in need, but instead held some of the money back and as a result ended up dying. And as much as I'd love to use that story as an example of what happens if you don't give enough money to church, tragically that's not what it's actually about. What it's actually about is being spiritual phonies, fakes, pretending to have it all together even when we don't, sort of like you might do in a shallow small group. And the Apostle Peter makes that really clear in the text where he says, it's not about the money. You had a right to keep it. But what it's, the issue is what he goes on to say, which is you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. You see what was going on is other people in that church were selling everything they have, giving all their money away to help the poor. And it seems like Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look like they were just as generous. So they lied. They pretended to be more generous, pretended to be more spiritual, pretended to have it more together than they actually did just to impress other people. 
And, you know, and I know that this issue of trying to impress others and, you know, trying to sort of pretend to have it all together even when we don't, I know that that has nothing to do with life here on the east side, so why don't we just stand for the benediction? (laughs) This has everything to do with our lives, doesn't it? Because all around us, there is this pressure to keep up appearances. In our junior high and high schools, there's all this pressure to look smart, athletic, you know, be headed for the Ivy League and all of that. Then as adults, at work, in our neighborhoods, with our friends, all of this pressure to look super successful in our careers or financially all together or have great marriages or have perfect children. And church often makes that even worse because on top of all of that pressure, now you got to look like you never sin, which is hard to do and, you know, convincingly anyway. But the point of the story that we just read is that when we do that, when we pretend to be more together than we actually are, it brings death. But the promise of Jesus is he brings life and freedom if we live in a Jesus kind of a way. Now, before I go on, I just want to address one question that's probably lingering in some of your minds. Why did Ananias and Sapphira die? I mean, it seems like sort of a harsh penalty for kind of a little thing, right? Well, there's a couple of things to, to, to notice. First, it is interesting to point out that nowhere in the story does it say that God killed them. Right? It just says they fell down dead. Now, it's clear Peter thought Sapphira was going to die just like her husband, but even he doesn't say God's doing this. So some folks say, well, maybe they just got so stressed out by getting caught as posers, they had a heart attack and died. That's one theory. Other scholars point out that, you know, this is right at the very beginning of the church and when it's still kind of in its infancy, and deceit and hypocrisy like that could not be tolerated because it would have zapped all the energy out of the new movement. Others point out that death to a Christian isn't the worst thing in the world because we just go get to be with Jesus. But however we try to understand that part of it, the main point of this story is not that, you know, God is going to zap you if when the offering basket comes by, you put in the five instead of the 20. Okay, that's, that's not the point. The point is when we pretend to have it more together than we do, it brings spiritual, emotional, and social death. And you can see this in just how the story reads, right? It starts by this. All the believers are one in heart and mind. So in other words, nobody's fighting about the color of the carpet or the music on Sundays, right? With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So sermons are great. There were no needy people among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet to be distributed to anyone in need. What a great church. Right? Miracles are happening, folks are caring for each other, it's growing, but then look what comes next. But, and that's an important word, some translations have now, it really should be but, but a man named Ananias. And you can kind of sort of hear the Debbie Downer music at that point, right? Like wah, wah, wah. Right? Things were awesome, going great, but a man named Ananias screwed it all up. Right? How'd you like to be remembered that way? You know, wow, Bell Prez was a great church, it was happening, but a pastor named Scott, right? That's kind of the vibe that's going on here. Ananias and his wife brought posing, pretending, and hypocrisy into the church, into their spiritual lives. And when we do that, it brings death in a couple of ways. First, when we posture and pretend, it kills our ability to grow kills our ability to grow because we, cannot, because we can't admit our weaknesses, we can't grow through them because we don't even admit we've got them, right? Plus, we don't go to Jesus for help because we don't think we need help, so it kills our relationship with Jesus too. 
There have been so many times where I've been counseling, doing marriage counseling, or maybe counseling couples who are in serious debt, and I'll think to myself, man, if this couple had only come a year earlier, it had been so much easier. And sometimes they'll even say that. But you know, one of the reasons couples don't come forward for help is, you you got it, right? They don't want to admit that they've got a problem to anyone. Our pretending kills our ability to grow. Second thing our pretending kills is it kills community. Christian community is meant to be a place where I am fully known and still accepted, warts and all. But when we posture and pretend, it just kills that kind of community cold. I have a friend who was in a small group with some other women, all in their late 30s, and one day they were talking about how they are afraid of getting older because our culture's definition of beauty for women is, you know, thin and young, and they were afraid that as they got older, they wouldn't be as well-liked by friends or even as well-liked by their husbands. They were worried about it. So my friend said, you know what, let's make a deal together. Let's make a pact that we will grow old gracefully together. I mean, we'll exercise, stay healthy, all of that, but, but let's encourage each other in the things that really matter. So instead of saying, hey, that dress makes you look five years younger, you know, let's affirm each other for our character or for the way we love other people or for the way that we do the right thing even when it's hard. That way, this group could be one place that we are free from all of the cultural pressures around us, which no one can live up to anyway. You know what they all said? No. No, we just want to find ways to look younger. Can you hear the death in that story? But can you hear the promise of life in that story as well? That Christian community can be this place where we do not have to pretend to have it all together. Now, that doesn't happen all at once, right? It takes time to wade into those friendships. It takes time to realize all the ways that we are bound up by the culture. But over time, bit by bit, we can get free. And that happens here in this church in all kinds of ways. When we did the men's fraternity program, a lot of guys found some other men that they could talk to about something other than news, weather, and sports and get to the real stuff, not in an emotional, sloppy, gooey way, but just honest conversation. And we all need that. We all need to know that there's someone who understands our struggles, that there's someone there to encourage us to move forward. But when we pretend, it kills our ability to grow, kills Christian community, and finally, it kills the church's power to change the world. One of the biggest objections to church, you've all heard it, right? Ah, church is just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. To which I always want to say, yes, that's why you'll fit right in. Because we're all hypocrites, including me. But if we don't acknowledge that and pretend that we aren't hypocrites, the church loses its power to change the world because folks see right through that. But if Christian community is a place where I come with all my baggage plus carry-ons and I'm still accepted, encouraged to change, man, that is powerful stuff. So how do we get there? How do we get free from the death that pretending and posing brings and instead experience the freedom and the life that Jesus gives us? How do we get there? Three things. First, and get this through your head, I, I need to keep saying this over and over because our culture does not remind us of this. Perfection is not required. Jesus is not asking you to be perfect. Ananias and Sapphira seem to have some kind of idea that there's a standard that they had to meet. And Peter says, no, you didn't have to meet that standard. We just want you to be honest. Jesus is not asking you to be perfect. Your boss may be, your spouse may be, your friends may be, but Jesus is not asking you to be perfect. The mark of a Christian is not perfection. It's progress. For becoming like Jesus. 
Last year, my mom and dad went on a tour of old homes in their hometown of Dayton, Washington. And this tour required them to walk all over the town. And after a couple hours of this, my dad said, man, these, these shoes are way too big. And he looked, and he had on a size 12 when he wears a size 9. So my mom said, well, those aren't your shoes. Right? We, we didn't buy you shoes that are three sizes too big. Well, it turns out at each home they visited, they had to take off their shoes. <laughs> you so know what's going to happen, right? So, and at one of those homes, my dad just put on someone else's shoes and walked around town for the rest of the day in them, right? So they had to call every house, you know, they, they visited and asked, did someone lose their shoes, right? Finally tracked down a guy named Jim who'd been trying to walk around in shoes three sizes too small all day, wondering what idiot took his shoes, right? <laughs> at Christmas time, my family and I visited some of those same homes and we told our kids, you know, you have to take off your shoes. And my daughter said, well, I don't want someone to take them. And my wife said, don't worry, nobody wants them but your grandfather. Jesus is not asking you to fill someone else's shoes. He is not asking you to be more like so-and-so. He's just asking you to be you. And he is not asking you to be perfect. He's asking that you follow him and let him transform you from the inside out. Second way to life, and I've said this before too, if you mess up, fess up. Psychologists tell us that what we bury is what controls us. And, and so after a while, we start to obsess and it starts to kind of control our actions, our feelings, our moods. So we need to fess up. First to Jesus, not in a groveling, I'm such a worm, you must hate me God kind of a way. But just, you know, because of the cross, we can say, Jesus, please forgive me. I know you do. Help me become more like you. Instead of trying to save face, do an about face and fess up to Jesus, and then at least one other person. Which brings me to the third way to find freedom, and that is authentic Christian community. And what I mean by that is there needs to be one or two people in our lives that know us very, very well, that know all the great things about us, but that also know the things we struggle with, that can ask the question, where are you aching and where are you faking, and we give them an honest answer. Because when you have someone who knows both the good and the bad in you, but accepts you, loves you anyway, it sets you free from the fear of what if they only knew, oh, if they only knew, if they found out, right? It sets you free from that fear because someone knows. Plus, it helps you experience God's love more because it's coming to you through that person. We need a couple of people, more than just our spouse, because sometimes that's too much to put on a spouse, a couple of people that we can be honest with. Now, for some of you, let me just kind of pause here for a minute. For some of you, maybe especially the guys, probably especially the guys in this room, right? Like the thought of getting honest and those kinds of friendships and stuff, it probably just gives you maybe like the, the, the willies, right? I mean, my favorite line in that video is when the guy says, we don't use the phrase, unpack that thought. We figure it's packed away for a good reason. <laughs> I love that line, right? I mean, feelings, you know, too many feelings. I get uncomfortable too much, you know. Okay, so here's the thing. When I talk about getting real, I don't mean some kind of mushy, emotional Dr. Philophon, you know, where we just sort of cry and hug and say things like, I love you, man, you know, until we get to a full 10 on the kumbayometer, you know, doesn't need to be like that. It can be a very natural thing. Someone you, you golf with or someone you've known for a while, just start asking deeper questions. You know, how are you really doing? What's been great the last couple of weeks? What have, what's been hard the last couple of weeks? Where are you aching? Where are you faking? And get them to ask you those questions too. 
Now, just a couple of rules for the road, okay? Don't dump all of your issues on one person all at once, right? Whomp, you know, here's the sum total of my neediness, be my Christian community, right? No, it, you know, walk into these things gradually, but keep getting deeper and deeper and pick someone who's going to respond well, you know, someone who's not going to say, oh, you deal with that? Oh, gross, whoa. You know, tends to not be helpful. Um, but also someone who's not going to say, oh, that, no big deal. I do it all the time. Right? But someone who's going to say, you know what, this doesn't define you. How can I help you become who you want to be? And when we do that, we find freedom. And you know what? Ironically, often it leads that other person to respect us more, not less. I know a man who had a sexual addiction. One of the people he told was a younger guy that he mentors. This was several years ago. And the younger guy said, wow, you have a lot of courage to tell me that. And I am glad you're my mentor because I've already learned a lot from you. And I'm going to learn a lot more by how you go through this. Right? He, he, he ended up with being more respected, not less respected. I mean, what if Ananias and Sapphira, what if they, instead of pretending, what if they'd been honest? Let's play it out. And they said something like, you know what, guys, we're really struggling here. I mean, you guys gave everything, but we're not sure we want to do that. I mean, you know, we kind of like to buy season tickets to the chariot races, and there's that Palm Papyrus thing I've wanted for a long time. And, you know, but, but we also, we also kind of like the freedom we see in you guys to just give it all away and trust God's going to provide. So we're kind of torn. Well, the community probably would have said, okay, well, give as much as you can stand as kind of a training exercise, and, and we'll keep praying, and we'll help you find that freedom. We need that kind of community. And the only way to make that, that happen, okay, are you ready? Because this is going to be super profound. It's, this is going to change your life. It's very deep. It's very meaningful. The only way to make that kind of liberating, life-giving Christian community happen is you've got to make it happen. Okay, you haven't been to seminary, so you don't know how deep that is, but that was really, really deep. <laughs> Okay, someone has to take the first step to take a friendship deeper. It might as well be you. Yeah, but pastor, I don't, know. I don't have the time. Make it. This is too important. We're talking the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. Yeah, yeah, but they might judge me. Some might, so don't tell those people. Okay, pray about who are good people to talk to. And then usually if we do that, our gut instincts will lead us to the right people. Yeah, but pastor, I mean, you don't get it. And like in my neighborhood, at my week, in my workplace, man, if some of my weaknesses got out, I'd be doomed. You don't get it, pastor. Oh, don't be playing the pastor card with me. I mean, do you know how much pressure there is to look perfect in my line of work? Okay, don't be giving me that, all right? I mean, which is why I constantly tell you all the ways I mess up. Why? To lower expectations so I don't have to meet them. AKA freedom, but also to show you that you do not have to look perfect. Your pastor doesn't, why should you? I remember a couple years ago when my kids were younger, I was preaching over there in the sanctuary and I saw my wife walking across the lobby with our kids, one of them who was just throwing this monster fit, right? And I'm trying to preach and concentrate and I'm thinking, oh man, this just doesn't look good. But later, a woman said to my wife, you know, I just want to thank you. My husband and I were dropping off our kid at Sunday school, and she was throwing a fit. But then we saw your kid, and, and I said to my husband, see, even the pastor's kid is out of control. And we just felt so much better. <laughs> see what my wife and I do for you people? <laughs> the ways we serve, life, you know, we're just laying down our lives, right? But there's freedom in that. Freedom from the duck pond, where on top, we're just trying to look like we're gliding along but underneath, madly paddling away, afraid we're going to drown. 
I got an email from a woman who was raised in a Christian home, but in college got addicted to drugs and alcohol. Needless to say, she didn't tell her Christian friends, didn't tell her family. After college, she ended up even more addicted. It just got worse. She was really scared of the path she was on, but didn't know how to stop. Well, then out of the blue, one, an old friend from church, back when she went to church, just called her up. And for some reason, this woman told that church friend about her addiction. And I'll pick it up in this woman's words. This is what she wrote to me. She said, my friend asked me if I'd tried praying, and I started to cry. Why would God want to hear from me? I mean, I'd completely strayed. That's when my friend said something that changed my life. She told me that now more than ever was when God really wanted me to pray. Sort of like the lost sheep you always hear about in church. So I started praying. At first, my prayers were conflicted, to say the least. Dear Lord, please help me quit, but maybe just for a little while so I'm not as out of control. But then Jesus showed me a third way. I was nudged to tell my parents about my addiction. And I remember sitting there in the kitchen when I did. My mom looked like she was going to pass out. My dad just sat there for a moment, and then tears and so much love. There was no anger, like I expected. Instead, my parents told me how much they loved me and that they wanted to help, and it was, it's a feeling I just can't describe. I also then went and told a friend of mine who I'd always used drugs with that I'd gone and told my parents. She, in turn, told her parents, was met with the same response, so we both started to help each other quit. She then goes on to talk about how it wasn't easy, but with the power of Jesus, the support of her parents and friends, she was able to get clean and sober. She ended her email by writing this. It's been four and a half years since I last used, and I never intend to use again. I've experienced so much grace from God and from others. My slate has been wiped clean, and I've been given a fresh new start. And a huge help for me was sharing about my addiction with the people who loved and cared about me, who wanted me to get better, and who wanted to help. You talk about Jesus' third way, and I've experienced it in ways that are indescribable. It is amazing to think that Jesus died so that a sinner like me could have new life, but he did. You see, I thought I was lost, but it turned out I was just trying to hide, and Jesus was just waiting for me to want to be found. So much freedom in that story. So much freedom found by getting honest with Jesus and with a few other people in our life. So, where are things going great in your life? And do you have people that can celebrate that with you? And where are you aching and where are you faking? And do you have people in your life who can get into that with you and pray for you and encourage and empower you to become everything Jesus created you to be? And if you don't have those people, please, will you find those people? Because here's the thing, we've all got our stuff, but when we get honest about it, Jesus sets us free. So just before I close, I want to do, just do one last thing, just to kind of help get this in our heads. One last thing. I'm going to ask a few questions, and you just make a mental note. If any of these apply to you, just kind of make a mental note, all right? Have you ever lost your temper? I don't know. It might apply to someone here. Have you ever struggled in your marriage or worried about body image? Have you ever felt like you're not smart enough or good-looking enough? Have you ever had sexual thoughts that you know aren't very healthy? or use substances more than you should? Have you ever caught yourself subtly bragging about your accomplishments just to get others to admire you? Or how about this one? Has, have any of you ever had kids who don't always perfectly obey 100% of the time? Might apply to someone, I don't know. Have you ever gossiped about someone? Have you ever had doubts about God or told a white lie or felt inadequate to some task? Have you ever worried a little too much about something? 
Okay, if any one of those applied to you or the person sitting next to you, would you please stand? Wow. Y'all are a mess. What a messed up church you are. But you know what? Me too. I've been standing here for the last 20 minutes. So what does that say about me? So I have a word from you, for you from your brother Jesus. Welcome home. And wouldn't it be amazing? What power would there be if we were known all over the east side, if this was a place where you could come with gifts and skills and talents, as well as fears and sins and failures and insecurities. But unlike every other place in our life, this one place is the place that we do not have to pose and pretend to have it all together. We can be honest. And through the power of Jesus, the support of others, make progress toward becoming more like him. Look around, guys. I got stuff. You got stuff. All God's chilling got stuff. But Jesus is mighty to forgive, he is mighty to transform, he is mighty to save, and he can set us free. So Jesus, thank you. <laughs> the, 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 I call that the Presbyterian amen, indeed. So Jesus, thank you that we can be free, that we can come clean because you have wiped our sins away and we no longer live under them but you have released us from them. Thank you, Lord. Help us to be honest with you, honest with some others, so we know the freedom that you died to give us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.